My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the Lord be in my heart and on my lips, that I may worthily proclaim proclaim (laughs) the Holy Gospel in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of my favorite fast, casual places to eat, surprise, surprise, and you might be wondering why I'm opening with this, but if you listen to the reading from the book of Numbers, you might actually have an idea. And can you all hear me out there? I know it's a little bit windy. Can you all hear? Yeah? Ed, can you hear back there? You're good? Okay, just making sure. Steve, you can hear me over there? All right, good. All right, just making sure. So one of my favorite uh, places to eat is a fast, casual place called uh, Chipotle. How many of you love Chipotle? Amen. God bless you. When I first discovered it, I ate there a lot, like way too much, way too much. And it didn't help, right, that I worked right down the road from one, too, for a while. And uh, one day, I was with a group of friends. I ate a steak burrito, and I don't know why, but for some reason, that day, it tasted amazing. So I thought to myself, I'm only kind of full. This is really, really good. I think I'm going to get another one. And if you know anything about their burritos, they are not small. I don't know how they do it, but they're like, they can get to like this thick, depending on on how you wrap it. And I was like, I think I'm going to get another one. I can put a different meat inside this time, trying to find ways to sort of, sort of justify it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I got up and I walked to, to get back in line to get a second burrito. And then while I was standing in line, I started to think about a couple of things. The first was... Well, I kind of, maybe I shouldn't be eating this because I'm not in the best shape right now. And it probably is not going to be good for me. And then I thought about my family members, some of whom have made really bad choices with food and have wound up paying the price, price physically for it. Um, and that kind of grew in my mind. And I had recently had an experience with, with my aunt, who's now, who's now sadly uh, departed this life to be with Christ, but whose relationship with food was incredibly unhealthy. And it led her to a place where, where she had to have surgery to, to help her control how she ate. And I started thinking about that. So instead of placing an order... I went and I sat back down, I went to the table, I joined my friends, and then we got up and and we left to go somewhere else. And I thought about that, that strong craving that I had for another burrito. And in the book of Numbers, in the new and in the NIV, it says uh, they had uh, for for strong uh, they had among them a strong craving. I think in the NIV it said for, for strong food or different food. But in ESV, it says strong craving. In other translations, it says strong craving. And then I started thinking about how strong cravings, my own strong craving for a a delicious burrito almost led me to a place of gluttony where I would have gone to eat another one. And I probably could have forced it down, but it would not have been very good for me. How strong craving led to, or had the potential to lead to, 
serious physical ailments through overindulgence. And so I'm preaching on that this morning, strong cravings, primarily out of the reading we heard this morning from the book of Numbers in our Old Testament lesson. And this chapter from the book of Numbers is fascinating because it highlights two incidents, incidents that occur sequentially that have some of the, the, the same features. Now, we didn't start with verse 1 in the reading from Numbers. We actually started with verse 4 of the 11th chapter. And what happens is in verse 1 through 3, after leaving Sinai, the people of Israel complain against the Lord. Right? They complain against the Lord. And we often think about, why is it such a big deal that the people of Israel complained against the Lord? And why, when that happens, bad things usually wind up happening to them as a result? Well, the complaining leads to, to, to sin. And we know, right, because the Lord had promised to dwell among them, right? That was the whole point. Remember the tabernacle that they had, the tent that they built? Remember the Ark of the Covenant that they carried, right? They carried it with them, and then that's where the presence of the Lord rested upon it, and they had the big tent that they had, and then the Ark of the Covenant was in the tent, right? That was called the tabernacle, and that was God, His presence dwelling in the midst, and then the people, like you would have the tabernacle in the middle, and then the 12 tribes would kind of camp all around it like that, the whole point being, this is the people of God. And right in the middle of the people of God, God's presence dwelt. And we know that God is holy. And we also know that sin cannot stand in the presence of pure, undiluted holiness. Right? So when you have holiness, and then when people sin, the results of that sin, when confronted with the holiness of God, bad things happen. Plagues break out. People die. And that's what happens in the first three verses here in Numbers chapter 11. And right after this happens, it says the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. So this should make you think to yourself, well, who are the rabble? Who? Who are they? And the answer can be found in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, where it says, a, excuse me, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, right? So when the, the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, when, when Moses led them out of Egypt, there we had the whole group of the people of Israel, a bunch of people from Egypt wound up taking their stuff and going with them, right? Because they saw God's mighty hand against, against Egypt. And we talked about this in our Exodus series that we did uh, a while back. You can find that on the podcast about how God, the 12 plagues, or sorry, the 10 plagues in Egypt was a sign of God's judgment against the gods of Egypt. And so maybe they said, well, this God is stronger than our gods, so we're just going to follow them, right? So you have this group of people traveling with the people of Israel out, uh, out in the Exodus. And so this is, this is the rabble, right? The people who are not the people of God who have followed the people of God out into the wilderness, following them to the holy mountain. So this group seems to have been the match that lit the fuse that sets this story going. And unlike what happened earlier, something different results, well, sort of. So this group of people, this rabble, who, who, who followed the people of God and ostensibly joined the people of God, they start to long for what they left behind in Egypt. 
And this spreads then, it moves from there to the whole community of God's people. They're tired of manna. They're tired of the bread. And, and notice that, it's, that the rabble too, they got the manna also. So when they're traveling with the people of Israel, they're experiencing all of the blessings, all of the goodness, all of the mercy of God that the children of Israel have been experiencing. They've received the manna too. But they say, remember the fruits and the vegetables that we had when we lived in Egypt. Remember when we could just go to the Nile River and get free fish. We could just cast our, our rod out into the, into the River Nile and you know, hopefully there are no crocodiles there. And we could just fish and get whatever we wanted for free. And all the great vegetables that we can cook with, the leeks and the onions and the cucumbers and the garlic. Wasn't that great? All of that good stuff that we had. If only we had stayed behind. Now all we have is this bread that you don't have to actually bake yourself. That God basically every morning, he just takes like a heavenly bucket full of it and he just goes like this. And all they have to do is wake up, open the doors of their, oh, the, open their tents, go outside and say, oh, here's some bread, and just pick it up, take it inside and eat it. That's all they have to do. They don't have to plant anything. They don't have to water anything. They don't have to raise any animals and then kill them and butcher them. They could just go outside every single day and have God's miraculous provision for them. And they say, that's not enough for me. I want the stuff that I used to have back when I was enslaved. And the people then, this spreads from the rabble to the people of Israel, and they all begin to weep and wail. And notice this, right? It doesn't say that they complain. It says that they wail. It says that they started weeping and crying. And so two things happen. God hears it and gets angry. And Moses hears it and gets angry. But then what Moses does is he takes this anger to God in prayer. And he tells God exactly what is making him angry. Even if he does sound a little bit whiny. I mean, and that's kind of a powerful lesson for us too, not to get off the point a little bit. But oftentimes we feel like when we're angry at something, even if we're angry at God, oftentimes we just sort of bottle that up. And we don't do anything with it. And then we feel guilty because we feel angry with God about something. But Moses brings that anger to God. And he says, God, this is what's going on here. I'm angry because of this. And I think that's an important lesson for us. Sometimes when things don't happen the way we think in our lives, maybe something turns out differently. A beloved family member dies. Something happens that we don't expect, financial losses, sickness, right? God, I did all of these things right, and this bad thing still happened to me, and I'm angry. We can actually take that to God in prayer. And guess what? God can handle our anger. God can handle our anger. Now, I'm not saying to start walking up and down the, you know, your living room cursing and swearing at God, but expressing that anger to God, that disappointment to God, that's okay. And it's important to do a thing sometimes. I don't understand why this is happening and I'm angry, but still I trust that you know what's best for me. 
So Moses says, you gave me this people to lead. I didn't birth them, you did. And then you punished me by making me their leader. I didn't want it. I was shepherding sheep on the backside of the mountain after fleeing Egypt. I was fine. And then remember you appeared in the burning bush and then you told me to go and then you gave me the staff and then I went. I didn't ask for any of that. And I need help. And if I can't get any help, I want you to just kill me now. Kill me now. And the Al Pacino Award for Best Overacting goes to Moses, right? And in response, what does God do? God tells Moses, okay, I want you to select 70 elders from among the people of Israel who are already recognized as leaders in the community. These 70 men then are going to help Moses govern God's people. Right, the reading from Numbers doesn't get into the rest of this, but what happens is the 70 men that God tells Moses to choose who are already recognized as leaders in the community, they come to, the, to where the tabernacle is. And then something amazing happens. God has put his spirit upon Moses. So then what God does is he takes some of the spirit that he's put on Moses and he takes some of that and then he puts it on the 70 elders and then they all start prophesying in the middle of the camp. So these 70 men that God has, that were leaders, God brings and Moses appoints to be leaders of the people, right? And so each one of these 70 men is going to have responsibility over a particular area because at this point, there's hundreds of thousands of people for them. And Moses says, this is too much for me. So what God does is, is he draws in these 70 men to help Moses, to help Moses lead them, to help Moses govern them, to help, ostensibly, prevent this type of thing from happening again. Moses is so overburdened that he cries out to God, and God hears and provides a way for him to be able to do what God's asked him to do. And this is a picture of what happens at Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the apostles and those who are in the upper room with them. A picture of the Holy Spirit being eventually poured out upon all flesh. And in response to the people's crying, God sends quail to feed them. And in response to Moses, God sends him these qualified men to help him lead the people of Israel. But all of this starts because of their strong craving this craving that they had for something that they used to have, but they don't have access to anymore. A craving that was so intense and so strong in them that they, <laughs> that they wailed and cried, why don't we have this anymore? And as a result of that, a plague breaks out among them as they, it says in the text a little bit later on in Numbers, as they even beginning to eat the flesh of the quail, as they start to bite down, a plague breaks out and a bunch of them die, and many die because of the strong craving. And this may cause us to ask, well, why? Why did their strong craving that led them to getting quail to eat lead many of them to dying? And the psalmist in Psalm 78 beginning with the 27th verse, kind of parses this out for us. It says this, 
He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Right, so what's happening here is, in spite of all of the wonders that have happened beforehand, it doesn't inspire them to belief and faith and trust. And then even in the midst of their, that provision of the quail, it doesn't lead them to belief either. Even though God sent it, <laughs> their response to it was still one of unbelief. And I think that, and this isn't in my notes, this is just sort of a, an aside. I think we, we, we think sometimes that if we saw something miraculous that we would believe. Has anybody ever thought of that? Well, if I actually saw a bona fide miracle, I would believe that God is real. I know none of you because you're all here at church. <laughs> so maybe you know somebody or I, you have a friend, right? Sometimes we think if we saw a genuine miracle, I would then totally believe. But when we read scripture, we see that the opposite is the case. We see that miracles that happen often have the opposite reaction. We even see this in the life of our Lord. He'll just get finished feeding 5,000 people. Well, 5,000 men, so we don't even know how many women and children there are, so there's more than 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And then right after that, the Pharisees come to him and say, we'll believe in you if you give us a sign. And Jesus is like, what? What did I, what did I just do for you? Because for some people, no sign is good enough. No sign is good enough. So it's like the story of rich, the rich man and Lazarus, right? When, when, when the rich man dies, he says to Father Abraham, while he's being tormented and, and, and Lazarus is being comforted, he says, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus back to the world, right? So he can tell my brothers about this horrible, horrible place. And Father Abraham says to the rich man, he says, my son, even if one rose from the dead and went back and told them, they still wouldn't believe. And what does Jesus do on the third day? This is not a trick question. He rises from the dead. And when we read the Gospels, it even after that, it still says, and some doubted. Some doubted. The resurrected Christ, seeing the resurrected Christ, some doubted. And then remember last week, we looked at the passage from the epistle of St. James that said that, that they're not receiving answers to their prayers because what they're asking for will be used to satisfy their lusts. This story here in Numbers is an example of that lesson in action. That strong craving is a manifestation of their unbelief-driven dissatisfaction 
with the leading and the provision given not only to them, but the non-Israelites that followed them by the God who delivered them from subjugation and slavery. That was good. So I'm going to read that again. That strong craving was a manifestation of their unbelief-driven dissatisfaction with the leading and provision given not only to them, but the non-Israelites that followed them by the God who delivered them from subjugation and slavery. Unbelief-driven dissatisfaction. And it gets to a point where strong cravings for things can lead us into very dark places. So what do we learn from, from all of this? Well, number one is be wary of strong cravings. The Bible also calls this lust. And St. John says, he, he, he parses it out as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And what's especially dangerous about strong cravings is when we start to attach them to different things. So when we look at the lessons from this, from this, this story in the book of Numbers, we have this image of the rabble in the middle of God's people, right? So we always have to remember, well, we have to remember two things, right? So the rabble are going to represent in this story those who are unregenerate, right? Those who are outside of Christ. And the people of Israel are going to be God's people. For us, it's going to be those who are regenerate, those who have come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But we don't know, as we gather as the church, who the rabble are. We don't know. Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares. Have you ever, do you remember that parable? Right, where, you, where they sow the wheat and then the, the, uh, the bad guy, the, the deceiver, he comes out and he sows the tares. And the only thing they can do is because tares and wheat look almost identical, the only way you can actually sort them out is after you harvest them and you start to pluck them and then you start to process them. Then you can see what the difference is. And then what you do is you take the wheat and you put it over here so you can store it and use it for grain and bread and all that stuff. And then what do you do with the tares? You cast it into the fire because you can't eat it. But the, they grow together with the wheat. So the lesson for us is we are God's people. But there will always, as we are part of God's people, there will be those who are among us, who St. John will say, and I think in his first, uh, his, his first epistle, he'll say, they went out from us, but they were, not they were not of us. So what will happen is, as we gather as the church, there will always be those people who may, they may faithfully show up their entire lives they may even have from back in the day 40 pins for perfect attendance and Sunday school memory verses. When I was a kid, one church that I went to, which should tell you something about what they valued, they would give you money if you memorized your Bible verses. I came back one time from Sunday school, my first Sunday at that church, I made like $3. And when you're 10 years old, $3 might as well be 500 because back then, like in the machines, uh, you could get like a candy bar for like 25 cents. And now I sound like a really old man, and I'm not even that old. 
but <laughs> sorry, stupid joke. Anyway, but we, the rabble and God's people, the wheat and the tares, and it can be people who know the Bible, who may think they know the Bible, who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him who may be not here when we visit somebody else's church, sitting even maybe a row or two back from you or in front of you. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we don't know. And the other thing is we can't find that out on our own. And so the only thing we can do is just continue to be faithful. Because as we progress and continue in faith, that's when they get exposed or dealt with. And some of them might not even be exposed or dealt with until the judgment day. Until the judgment day. And in our tradition, you know, we're, 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 we're congregationalists. And so, uh, you know, our forefathers in the faith, many of them from one, one major group, were the Puritans. And so when the Puritans uh, came over from England, one of the things that they, they one of the, this theology that they held to was something called and you may have heard of this back, back, back of the day, the marks of election. Does anybody go back long enough to remember hearing any of that ever preached about the marks of election? Anyone? Ray, have you, do you remember that? Right, so a mark of election was if you were one of the elect, one of the saved, if you worked hard and your business was prosperous and you worked hard in the fields and you had good crops and you had a good, like a good family and you kept control over everything, that was a mark that you're one of the elect. The problem with that theology is it leads people to start trying to do that, to put a brave face on it, to make it look like you're one of the elect. Meanwhile, you could be one of the rabble with a completely unregenerate heart, stirring up and causing trouble and causing the whole community to turn against God. So we have to be careful of that. We have to be wary of that. But we don't know who they are, right? And the rabble will at times try to stir up the people of God. And they will do this by appealing to our lusts. They will do this by appealing to strong cravings for things that God has said no to. The things that God says, no, this may hurt. But you can't go there because if you do, it will lead you to destruction. And those strong cravings lead us from they lead us from life to death. They lead us to search for satisfaction, not in the daily bread that God has promised to provide for us, that we ask him for every day that he provides for us when we come before his altar and table. It, see, it turns us from seeking our spiritual nourishment in what he's given us, and it turns our attention and our gaze to get our satisfaction towards quail, towards the meat of this world, which ultimately, if we indulge in, will lead to our own destruction. So the only thing we can do, right, as James says in the reading we heard from his epistle this morning, to pray for one another. And I can't stress this enough, brothers and sisters, as the people of God, we need to pray for one another. Watch everybody just look around. Stand up for a second. 
I know you're comfortable. Just stretch it out a little bit. If you're not able to stand, it's okay. I get it. I want you to go like this and turn around like that. You need, to, and you can turn back and look at me. All right. It's do a 360, not a 180. A 360, you want to, except, for, except for Riley, you need to do another 360. There you go. And Lydia, you need to do a, another one too. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Right? All those people that you just saw, you should, even if you don't know them by name, you can sit down. You need to pray for that person. You need to pray for them. Even if you don't know their needs, even if you don't know their name, you can still pray for the church as a whole. I have a list at home that I print up and I'm always refreshing, that I bring before the Lord in prayer, and it has a list of all of the individuals that I pray for every single day, every single day, every, almost every single day. I'm not perfect, right? Some days I miss it, but almost every single day. And there's some of you here that are on that list that I pray for every single day. And even if I don't pray for all of you individually every single day, I still pray for the church every, almost every single day. I don't want to lie. There's some days I miss it. But that's what we need to do because that helps them to generate the love and the care and the compassion that we have for one another. Because let me tell you something. If we start to show that love and compassion and Christ-like love to each other, those people who might be rabble, who might be one of the unregenerate, what do you think that's going to do for them? It might actually turn their heart back to God. It might actually, God might use that to draw them into the faith. And that could be a powerful thing. That could be a powerful thing. So pray for one another. Love one another. And then lastly, Moses says to God, he says, I didn't birth these people. I can't carry all of these people alone. The burden of all of them is too heavy for me. And he can't. Moses is right. He can't carry the burden, the, the needs and the wants and the hurts and, and everything that's going on in the community. He can't do it alone. So God sends him the 70, right? But what does God do for us? And sending us Jesus, his son, our Lord. Moses can't bear the burden of carrying and caring for all of the people, right? But Christ can. We call him the shepherd and the high priest of our faith, right? He is the shepherd of the flock, right? We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Christ can care for us. Christ can handle the burden. Not only can he handle the burden and the weight of our sin, which he did, and the burden and the weight of our mortality, which he did, and the burden and the weight of all of our corruption, which he did by dying and rising for us. He does all of that for us at the same time while leading us and guiding us and drawing us into new life every day as we continually turn our hearts to him. And so to him, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and his all-holy good and life-creating spirit. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have a few minutes, I'd ask you to go to gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We have some significant repair work that we need to do on our bell tower. 
as well as some repair work due to a recent lightning strike. Anything you'd be able to help us out with, we would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of me or you have any questions about what you've heard, feel free to reach out at our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or you can check us out on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.